Those who assume hypotheses as first principles of their speculations may indeed form an ingenious romance, but a romance it will still be. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, yeah, baby, Roger Coates. Roger Coates, Roger Coates, looking up in the sky, all the stars and the planets in front of your eyes. That's a beautiful song. Have you been writing that for a while? Uh, a few months now. I'm pretty happy with how it's turned out. Jamie? Yes? Have you ever heard of Roger Coates? Do you know what? I have. I- I've heard you mention him before. Um, but I'm glad that we've got some more details here because mm. um, turns out he was pretty special, right? Very special and, and probably a tragic loss. Mm. Born today on 10th of July, 1682. Yes. But what he's famous for is being a mate of Isaac Newton. Yeah, big Isaac. And of course, uh, Principia has its own anniversary yeah. this week, I noticed. And Roger was the man to proofread the second edition. I think he did the, the preface as well, because he was the oh. only person that really understood and could catch up with Newton's brain. Mm. He went over to Isaac Newton and said, look, Isaac, this book is insanely good. You need to revise it, though. We need to have a second edition. And he basically, Isaac Newton had sort of given up on science. He was sort of like, oh, yeah, whatever. I'm too busy doing alchemy. He's a total nut job, Newton, yeah. when you look at it. Yeah. Uh, and But uh, no, apparently <clears throat> Coates managed to um, coax Isaac Good. Newton into, um, into being a science a scientist for, for the next three and a half years and they worked out things like the motion of the moon the equinoxes the orbits of comets and wow. um obviously wrote arguably the most important space book ever written it's pretty <laughs> important isn't it yeah it's pretty important yeah. and would you say matt that i'm i'm your roger coates I would think you are my Roger Coach. Yeah, because you're a bit of a nut job, aren't you? And I'm sort of like trying to bring you down, (laughs) make you put your work out. Yeah, you're the only one that understands me, Jamie. Yeah, this is it. This is it. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for you, I'd just be in the corner, just doing Brian Brian May covers, (laughs) (laughs) which isn't which isn't so bad. I mean, what that's no, no, but such a bad life, you know. Or arguing with people on Facebook. Is everything I do is driven by you? I don't think I'm ever going to get round to covering that song. <laughs> yeah, please don't cover right. that one. Um, so, should we talk about Rocket Lab fails? Oh, and I say wow. fails, I mean that in the singular term because it's their first time. Yeah, well, sort of. I mean, that the very, very first flight of the Electron, of course, well, yeah. was a failure. But that's actually, you know, not that uncommon for a maiden flight to to go awry. But, uh, you know, this is the first failure with a commercial payload now, on board. Now, the name of the mission. I mean, for me, this is the best we've had so far. Mm-hmm. Picks or it didn't happen. I mean, that <laughs> is awesome. Well, but it did end up being a kind of a prophecy. Yeah. yeah. The moment that the video feed switched off, uh, of course, that was the end of the mission and we never and really found out. And it actually didn't what, happen. Uh, so, yeah, they... I believe it was Shakespeare, Matthew, who coined the phrase hoist by their own petard. 
Mm. There we go. Yeah. I'm sure there's probably about six Shakespeare phrases that you could apply to that particular yeah. um, moment yeah. in time. Uh, Electron has flown 13 times and mm. 11 successes in a row since that maiden voyage. But this last 13th flight has, yeah, failed. Oh, dear. It had payloads from Spaceflight Inc., Canon Electronics Inc., Planet, of course, with their Super Dove things. But the but the depressing one, and I did mention this at the end of last week's podcast, were In Space Missions had a satellite on there from the UK called Faraday One. Mm. And uh, yeah, they were. You can, it's. I was actually following that story. It's the culmination of two years of extremely hard work and lots of money and getting money from various places. And, yeah. But not. But uh, not, not only is it just like a a single satellite, but this satellite hosts lots of other satellites. So it hosts seven payloads, and wow. those payloads were from Airbus Defence and Space. So that was this Prometheus One the next generation of retaskable software-defined radios, Cleos Space with this maritime traffic tracking satellite, Lacuna Space, which is uh, the Internet of Things. The, uh, there was some Australian Environmental Research Centre, Canad- Cadensis Aerospace, Asterium, another major player, and worse... Worst payload to lose was a plaque inscribed with the mission logo from uh, the families and school competition winners. See, that's sad. Yeah. Yeah, that is quite sad, actually. And a secret gin recipe from the local distillery, Silent Pool Gin. So shout out to Silent Pool Gin. Shout out. You didn't make it into space, but I have now heard of you, and hopefully our podcast listeners have heard of you, and we will all go out and buy your gin in commiseration. Let's all go and buy some Silent Pool gin, please. And Silent Pool, if you're listening, I'm a big gin fan. If you'd like me to wear any (laughs) T-shirts, I can put it up on our Instagram. I can can maybe throw you a hashtag. Um, Yeah. Yeah, love a gin. I won't tell anyone your um, secret recipe. I'm, uh, I'm assuming that they're a local to Borden in Hampshire, but I'm going to have to check that up. I've never really heard of the town Borden before. but Well, I we think go. maybe we should try and get an interview with somebody from Silent Pool. Our first, <laughs> um, our first gin. Our first booze interview. Yeah. Matt, and, and you're uh, a big fan of doing things. Do you remember ages ago we had that chat where I said, I get annoyed um, that there's a part of me, a very small part of me, that, you know, if it, if anything was like number 13 or, um, mm. you know, walking over three drains that's, that when you oh, were a yeah. kid, people said it was bad Avoiding luck. the crack. Yeah, just, the just, just like, you know, just avoiding it. Just, just, you know, just in case, you know, anything bad happened, which I know is ridiculous, but I do it sometimes anyway. But you actively seek out these things just to prove that it's BS. But mm-hmm. um, but but yeah, um, thirteenth time. There we go. But but you know what? Oh, it's just think it's just that. silly, really, isn't it? Because of course, yeah. Do you know, do you know what? I didn't even notice it. Thirteenth time, they're going to fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there was a there was a um a, a statement by Doug Liddle. Yes. It says, in space will not be deterred by this unfortunate accident. A lot of amazing work has been achieved to date, and we are already putting our experience on Faraday 1 to work on our Faraday second generation ESA program, as well as our number of other satellites we've under contract. We are planning a Faraday 1B for launch 
in the middle of 2021, and we will now look to bring this forward. We will continue to work closely with our payload customers and plan to be on the launch pad again in the very near future. Excellent and very wise words from Doug Little, CEO and founder of In Space Missions. Well, that's great, isn't it? And, and isn't, yeah. that, isn't that so space? It's just like, look, oh, this, is, this has happened. It's not great. But we've learned from it. We're already yeah. on to the next thing. We're moving forward. Quite a lot of stiff upper lip there. And, uh, of course, Peter Beck did a very, very quick video response that's worth watching. It's very good. Peter Beck. And it's great. Yeah, so, isn't there, um, a, ba- yeah, isn't there good- a band called Stiff Upper Lip? I hope so. Yeah, if I not, hope so. It's a great name, isn't it? We should, that should be actually a very good band name. Matt, what's your favourite well, um, liner? My favourite liner yeah. isn't uh, it isn't eyeliner, it's starliner. Oh, OMG. So who is getting redundancy? Is, is <laughs> Boeing being made redundant or is NASA seeking a redundant space system? Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's actually the, the, the latter. So, yeah. yes, in December we did have that rather awkward Starliner CST-100 flight that went completely wrong with a bunch of, well, a catalogue of hiccups, it mm. turned out in the end. I mean, a software glitch that, made, that um, made the whole mission fail in its primary purpose. It wasn't a complete failure. It did manage to orbit and come back down. But there was two huge uh, software errors, one where basically the, the Starliner had set its mission clock to the atlas and therefore thought it was in the wrong part of the mission and and it was just continually burning fuel to try That's and right. change direction then that then they found when they were correcting that they found another software glitch that could have ended the mission in potential disaster and that was mm. something to do with the way it disposed of the service module but then it also turns out that the comms were really poor during the mission as well that there's some kind of radio interference on the craft so Overall, compared to SpaceX's much more um, error-free trips to the International Space Station, it really was an embarrassment to both Boeing and really NASA. NASA have sort of reviewed their own procedures and found themselves a little bit wanting as well. So Mm. 80 recommendations have come out, and uh, hopefully we'll see the Starliner go up on an Atlas V near the end of this year on its on a repeat of the mission so almost a year later and uh, hopefully it will be flying in 2021 good lord let's hope so do you know when it was supposed to be flying do you know when boeing said <coughs> that they would get this thing flying by 2015 wasn't it 2015 originally yeah, yeah. then it was you know then it was sp- properly chalked up for 2017 then 2018 i mean we we kept having it as our this is the thing that's going to happen this year for 2018 2019 and 2020 now we're now we're um you know a few years into the podcast we uh we're just used to it we're cynical you know we know that these things get predicted we're very used to it (coughs) james webb yeah (laughs) well and and just just about everything else. Everything well, else. Well, talking yeah. of that, talking of that, I think uh, old Bobby Z, old Bobby Zubrin, he's yeah. also um, 
fed up with space missions missing their deadlines. And he, he's pretty convinced that Artemis is not going to get to the moon by 2024. So he, mm. he wrote a letter to uh, NASA and, and, and the US government, basically with his plan to use Falcon Heavy and the Dragon capsules to do an Apollo 8-style mission where you fly okay. around the moon and just just to sort of say we can do this in the next year or so yeah. and it'll be a really good kind of yeah here we go let's do it kind of space thing to do and get everyone enthused about space again um i i absolutely loved when i sent it to the discord um Rob's reply was that the, the letter was essentially, Dear Jim Bridenstine, here's an idea that will provide a further nail in the coffin of SLS. What do you think? <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yes. Um, yes. <clears throat> and he kind of points out that there's probably not much point to it, uh, but maybe less pointless than launching a Tesla. Yes. So, you know, yes. it's that there's a, quite some interesting things in the, in the Zubrin paper itself about you know because a lot of people have been saying yeah that the dragon capsule just can't do a moon return it's like well it's designed for mars return so the heat shield should be easily good enough so uh yeah there's it's 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 a good read anyway so yes you get the chance read artemis 8 using dragon by robert zubrin it's very it's it's i'm gonna give it a read read. yeah nice one bobby he's read worthy isn't he bobby's old bobby z i'll give him that really is yeah um, of course, the really big news this week, Jamie, and we, we, let's not dwell on it too much, but no. uh, unlike unlike any of our competitor podcasts, Jamie and myself have become co-owners of a mega constellation. Oh, we don't want to brag about it. Ah, we, are, we are now, interplanetary podcasts are now actually officially um, commercial rivals to Elon Musk. Isn't yeah, that? this is it. That's, yeah, I mean, yeah. he is going to so be... We, He's gonna, he should be worried about us, you know. Co-owners of OneWeb, because the UK government, as we talked about last week, did indeed put in a bid with an Indian industrial um, company, well, a telecoms company, uh, to take over OneWeb. And, and lot, it's, everyone is very unsure yeah. quite what the wisdom is. But there was a few a few little clues. They were saying that they might restrict other countries using it, which was like a whoa. Then they talked about manufacturing in the UK, but it's like, well, hang on a second. They've only just built the the brand spanking new factory in America, so that doesn't quite make sense, especially if you're yeah. playing catch up with SpaceX. Uh, and of course, can they actually build GNSS global navigate global navigation into it? Mm. Now that see that didn't get mentioned on the government press release, so it was it, the government was selling it much more. And this is like a, a sort of sign to our commitment about UK space and being a world leader in digital technology. So that's at the moment where it stands. So we just don't know, Jamie. I'm willing to be positive about the whole thing. And of course, it does give us bragging rights over pretty much every other podcast. Exactly. Eat that other podcasts <laughs> in your face. Yeah, <laughs> there's a little bit of me that's hoping, of course, that they won't have the last laugh on this one. Yeah, um, I think we're going to regret uh, this. Well, I don't know. I really don't know. I just don't know. In astronomy, mm. if you've been lo- if you look been looking out your window in the very early morning, you can perhaps see 
comet Neowise just before oh. the sun rises. It's become a visible naked eye comet, and there's been some fantastic pictures of it, just you know, straight camera pictures of of Comet Neowise. So that's definitely worth going out. It might be sort of fading now, but um, it's definitely worth trying to have a. You'll, you have to get up early, just just before sunrise, basically, and you should be able to see it where the sun is about to rise. If you look off in that direction, uh, you should be able to see definitely. it coming up. I need to get involved. The weather's been a bit dank recently, but yeah, yeah I'll have a yeah, look. Well, yeah, well, exactly. Well, I was going to do it, but it, uh, it never kind of actually mm. happened. Uh, another another one that's come up. Some European officials have started talking openly about Ariane 7, let alone Ariane 6. Oh. And, and they've been saying essentially that it needs to be reusable as SpaceX have redefined the whole business. Yeah, well, that's true. But... Ariane six itself is a is um, a needed stepping stone to get to Ariane seven. So we'll have Ariane six for a bit, but then yes, we will probably next see an Ariane spacecraft. After that, the designs having little landing legs, just like the Falcon nine. So well, that should be bound interesting. to happen. Bound to happen. Yeah, yeah they got some but, catching but, up to do, as you said. They yeah, that that is severe catching up right there. Um, Talking of catching up, there's been a delay with the Mars Perseverance rover oh, because of a problem with the Atlas V Centaur stage, apparently. So there's it's been a bit of a delay. So obviously that pushes back onto the pushes a little back on the launch window. And if you miss it, you have to wait two years. And of course, that's already happened to the European rover twice. So mm. um uh, yeah, it's not all certain for Perseverance. I'm pretty certain it will still go, but um it's just a little bit more dicey than it was in the previous week. Yes. Yeah, yeah. El um, dice did flow. <laughs> exactly. So, Jamie, do you want to get on to our little science story yeah. of the week? Well, it's not really a science story. It's actually, it's a, it's, it's actually me being me being destroyed with facts and logic. Here we go. So yes, there was a paper again. This came out on the uh, on 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 the on the Discord channel. Our patrons shared this one: mm. human-assisted science at Venus, Venus exploration in the new human spaceflight age. That's my kind which of is exciting. Title. Yeah, exactly. So it's a white paper for the Planetary Science and Astrobiology Decadal Survey, twenty twenty-three to twenty thirty by Noam R. Eisenberg at John Hopkins University et al., right? Mm. Now, it explicitly debunks something that I said in Podcast 183. And P Podcast oh, 183 brilliant. was our live show at, from the Space Store. Oh, yeah. Now, well, great I had a shout-out to the Space Store in Oxford. Absolute shout-out to the Space Store. Um, um but the one thing I did do was quite a bit of research for like the journey to Mars, and mm. the first put the, the first part I got to was the choice between an opposition versus conjunction flight. Now, what I said at the time: so opposition, fly from Earth, and you land on Mars 180 days later. Right? Yes, but you leave Mars 30 days after that. So it's like right. I've got to go because I've got to go now to fly and do a Venus flyby to get back to Earth on day 640. Okay. So that is a, that's a long old flight, the Mars-Venus-Earth flight. 
Now, the conjunction version is um, exactly the same. You fly to Mars, 180 days you get there. You stay on Mars for one and a half years because that you, you have to wait until you get this launch window again that allows you to get back to Earth. And so you you and you fly back to Earth, and it takes another 180 days because it's kind of like the reverse journey mm-hmm. that you did before. So that mission is 270 days longer. And the reason why I was pointing that out was because basically it's a, it's a thousand day mission. So a, you know it's pretty much three years, over three years to sort it's of be one. on. It's a long one. So it's a sort of three year mission, whereas your opposition mission is really just over two years. So. There is a difference, but I said at the time that when you looked at the propulsion required to do the opposition version, it required a lot more fuel, a lot more delta V. Hmm. So for every 100% increase in delta V, you have 400% increase in propellant mass. So it's it's one of those horrible equations. It only has to be a little bit out and you're in trouble. And the argument I made was that pretty much it would definitely be a conjunction mission, therefore people would be out um, for three years. Now it turns out what I hadn't seen, uh, Jim Bridenstein was, had given his talk, uh, a keynote speech where he actually talks about, um, the fact that NASA really were considering the opposition class mission, okay. which is where they go to Mars via, uh, and come back via Venus as a two year mission. And it was like, oh my god! So, it, so actually, NASA have really kind of turned their back on the papers that I was using, and have come back to this thing of no, it would almost certainly be this opposition style thing. And this paper right. talks about what a great idea that is. So that, that you know, they talk about this that that Bridenstine's already said it. And that a recently released paper called the Sustained Lunar Exploration and Development, a NASA paper, had confirmed that it was a two-year round-trip mission to Mars that they were planning. In other words, it can't be this conjunction. It must be the opposition-class mission that they're planning. It implies that, even though it doesn't explicitly say it. Um, But what it's saying, but this paper is saying what a great idea a Venus flyby mission is, because there's so many pluses Although the bit, the clear big negative is that you have to spend a long time on a spacecraft over a year, uh, whereas before you only had to spend 180 days and most right. of your time and most of your time on Mars. Hmm. So it's like, but but then saying that is a two year journey. But there's there's some other benefits to it. So obviously the great thing is you spend all this money and you actually get two planets for the price of one. You know, you get to go to visit Venus. Now, although you're not landing on Venus, which which arguably is a terrible idea. Definitely anyway, don't do that, no. <laughs> they could actually spend some time as they approach Venus the um if you if you want to teleoperate something, i.e. using remote control. Yeah, do some science. For for about two days, you've got a window as you fly past Venus of pretty much instantaneous control of objects. So, Cloud for City. example, you could get you could get astronauts to control rovers. You could get astronauts to control the uh, descent vehicle. You could get astronauts to control aerial platforms. Yeah, like you said, like some some like drones in the atmosphere. Well, it's you, definitely and- where I imagine Lando Calrissian living. Yeah, exactly. So that I think they they will 
accidentally bump into a cloud city with, and go, yeah. oh my God, there is life on Venus, which would probably change everything. If intelligent yeah. people were living in clouds in Venus, that would be that would be definitely newsworthy. At Almost least. certainly going to happen. Yeah. And so, yeah, but, but the advantage, of course, is that crew can react very, very quickly to the information they're seeing. So they'll see something, then they can fly to it or move the rover to it. And, and it needs to be done quickly because, of course, stuff on Venus doesn't last very long when it's under insane pressure, acidic rain, and, and ridiculously high temperatures. So mm. it's a good thing. So you could actually get like some proper good science done. And, of course, the, in, the kind of mass of your vehicle is so big anyway because you're going to Mars and there's a lot of stuff on it. This kind of additional mass for science payloads for Venus actually isn't that bigger a deal because Agreed. as a percent because as a percentage of your of the, of the overall mission architecture it's not actually that bad and of course you could eat they may even be able to do a sample return as well so the crew could fly uh, a, a sort of atmospheric scoop and then guide it back to the spacecraft and that would actually be easier to do than it, a, a completely robotic mission I was just going to say, I think you're spitting straight facts at the moment. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. It could also be that it, it, that you could use this Earth-Venus-Earth because the great thing about flying past Venus on the way to Mars or on the way back is that you can, you could, you've got this mission abort opportunity. Hmm. But you've also got, uh, 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 you could do the Apollo 8 version of at least doing a a pretty decent shakedown of your spacecraft by doing a swing by venus and coming back uh, in other words it's like it's only a year-long mission i say only a year-long mission but scott kelly was on the international space station for a year so it's like you, you it, at least it's within the realms of stuff that we've done before although actually going to venus is actually higher radiation than going to mars because obviously you're nearer the sun but yes but but actually it does protect you a little bit from the sun actually protects you from the radiation coming in from uh, outer space from from mm. you know outer galactic outer solar system stuff firing in which is actually probably higher energy and more dangerous anyway who'd have thought it the sun protecting us from radiation well yeah so it does actually it, it gives you that uh opportunity and of course there's lots of things in there that that are quite interesting like latency so for example when you're on your way to mars that your your comms latency varies from 6.4 minutes to have a conversation to 44 minutes all right jamie 44 minutes 44 minutes later all right matt it's like <laughs> 44 oh, minutes later pardon <laughs> what <laughs> sorry i didn't quite catch that <laughs> oh, particularly yeah particularly if you're in a um starliner sorry yeah. what did you say <laughs> it would be a very so, yes, different the, podcast wouldn't it yeah yeah it'd be very annoying so um yeah the, the venus is only 4.6 minutes to 28 minutes so it's it's a little bit easier to deal with so at least it would give you practice at that longer mm. latency time without being r really annoying well i mean it's still really annoying but it's it's a good practice um thing again in some ways what we're talking about is this venus flyby being very similar to going to the moon before going to Mars, sort of treat it like a staging post. But also, 
Mars would give, uh, sorry, Venus would give the astronauts an opportunity to uh, do some science midway through a journey. So, like boredom and everything else is we know is one of the is one of the mind killers. Is yes. one of the most dangerous things on a long isolated space flight. Boredom not good is for, a disaster. Not good for the health. Not good for the health. So having this really exciting um, and very intense mission halfway through, which they can plan for and all that kind of stuff and get ready for and, and, yeah, and get practice. The science and all experiments that. It's ready. Like, yeah. Get the science. And it's like they know that they're doing something really, really, really worthwhile. Do you know what you know, it was like, Matt? It was like when we, as kids, our parents would drive us to uh, Dorset to go on holiday. Shout out mm -hmm. to Lyme Regis. And um, halfway, we would always stop and go to the Little Chef. Uh, and I would yeah, always was, yeah, get toasted tea cakes. And then on the way out, I'd get given a free lollipop. So it's kind of exactly the same as what you're saying. It's absolutely the same. You were doing a... Uh, <laughs> four-hour drive, and, and so little, two hours yeah. in, I knew that we were going to stop. Yeah, so the so Venus is your little chef, isn't it? Literally, it's it's the same thing. Yeah, it is absolutely. I wonder the same if you thing. get a free lollipop when you when you leave the orbit of Venus. Well, you might get the you might you might come away free in the knowledge that you've furthered human knowledge. You know, because the the the, <laughs> yeah. the 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 whole idea of Venus. Earth and Mars. Really, the big question is why are Venus, Earth, and Mars so different? What? Hmm. Where did our histories converge or diverge? What? Where, where did? Where did? Why did it all go wrong for Venus in a spectacular way that, like it has? And why did it go wrong for Mars in the spectacular way that it has in the opposite direction? Why is it brilliant for us on Earth? These are pretty important questions. They're and hugely can, important. And if you can if you can answer more of those questions by spending a similar sort of money, then the Venus flyby does seem to be a very smart move. It's just this very, very long space journey. But get this, if the space that your exposure to radiation, which as we've discussed quite a lot of times, is one of the biggest concerns for this opposition class mission, um, it's actually it's actually slight you get slightly less um radiation than you would on the longer three-year mission even though obviously your radiation exposure goes up a little bit because you're flying towards venus and you're out in yeah. the spacecraft for a long time they think that even then it would just be less exposure than the um than the longer three-year mission so it's that that's interesting so there does seem to be a lot of evidence here that it that, it, that I, I'm completely won over by this paper, by the way, and their I love that I love their finding at the end. It says finding human to Mars via Venus is logical, exciting, and offers unprecedented science at Mars and Venus at a fraction of a cost of dedicated crew missions to both. I love that. Yeah, Venus is how we get to Mars. Boom. So now we can have a Trump tweet that says, we should be talking about the marvellous Venus, which is, of course is part of Mars. I've always said Venus is the place we should be. It's a beautiful planet. Jamie, I've got an interview to play <gasps> you. 
Oh, finally. I did it this time last week with Who have we got? our good friend, Gurbir Singh, who has oh, a yes. book out about, well, I'll let him explain. It's about an Indian legend. But as as we know, Gurbir is a um, really an Indian space expert, but he's written about all sorts of things, uh, space-related and, and, and British space and Yuri Gagarin and all those kind of things. And he lives in sunny Manchester. He's got his own podcast as well. So actually, he's like us. He's a, he's a podcast that owns a space network, which is, you know... He definitely is. And, and although he writes about legends, the mm-hmm. irony is, Matt, that he is a legend. He, he really is. Astro Talk... AstroTalkUK.org is is his website. Awesome, awesome place to go. Lots of stuff. He's written some great books. But yes, his new book, India's Forgotten Rocket Pioneer, Stephen H. Smith. Excellent. Let's roll it. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So I am joined on the podcast yet again by Gurbir Singh. Welcome back to the podcast. How are you up in sunny Manchester? <laughs> it is indeed sunny. Now that uh, we're on audio only, I think I can say that safely. I'm very well. How are you, Matthew? I'm, I'm, yes, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm just uh, working hard and keeping my head down. That's... <laughs> <laughs> that's how I that's how I roll these days. Um, so uh, the reason why we're, we've got a call is because you've got a yet another book out. So let first things first, tell us about the book and and uh, and the background and everything about it. Because I think we heard a little bit of the story about the book on the last podcast, but uh, refresh our memory. Yeah. So this book is um, is called India's Forgotten Rocket Pioneer. And it's a story about a guy who's uh, called Stephen Smith. And I will come back to that name. (laughs) He is Indian. He was doing his rocket pioneering work in India. Uh, But uh, he, um, I wrote about him in a chapter in my first book, the Indian Space Program, which is what we spoke about when we last uh, uh, spoke. And... um, it's a story about an individual that a lot, lot of people around uh, in India, as well as outside the world uh, beyond, have, uh, don't really know much about him. So this is this big gap in the development of rockets when it comes to India. And um, that gap is, in historically, rockets were, uh, you've heard of Congreve rockets. Those Congreve rockets uh, were based on rockets that were used by a guy called Tipu Sultan, who was trying to protect his kingdom of Mysore against the British at the time. Um, But when he was defeated, those rockets came into England, and on the back of the Industrial Revolution and the technology developments that were taking place here, those rockets were developed, and uh, Britain used them in in, in Europe against France and Denmark, and even in uh, the against the Americans in the USA. Um, so the, this, the, this tradition of uh, development of rockets in India appears to have stopped them and started again when the Indian Space Research Organization uh, kicked off, or in the early days it was known as INCOSPAR, which launched its very first rocket in 1963. 
So between 1799, days of Tipu Sultan, and 1963, the rise of the now Indian space program, there was this big gap. And Stephen H. Smith was <laughs> uh, a guy who was testing rockets in India, in Calcutta mostly, between 1930s and 1940s. Um, in all, he did about uh, 270 uh, rocket experiments. Um, and um, in this nearly 10 years of doing rocket experiments, he was the only one who was doing it for that long. And it's, uh, uh, he developed various types of rockets, uh, what he called uh, boomerang rockets, telescopic rockets. And near the end of his 10 years, he even experimented with multi-stage rockets. And this is um, a time, 1930s and 1940s, when you will know that the um, British Interplanetary Society was founded. The rocket, uh, rocketry societies um, were founded right around the world, not just here in Britain, but in Germany, in Austria, uh, in, in America. And one of the earliest practical ways of um, testing rockets was um, to, one of the things that really took off was to send mail using rockets. Now, this wasn't in any practical sense, trying to replace the uh, post office, but it was very experimental. And also it allowed the people who were doing the, de the development of rockets to generate some income from the vast philatelic community who were really into collecting um, all types of flown mail. And there were uh, individuals like um, Frederick Schmiedel in Austria and Gerhard Zucker in Germany and even Carol Roberti in the Netherlands. All of these individuals were funding their rocket redevelopment by flying basic um, mail and then selling it to collectors. And the other two ways that uh, some rocketry experimenters generated income to allow them to continue to, with, with these experiments um, was to test um, what was happening in the high altitude, and particularly Friedrich Schmiedel in Austria was one guy who was probably technically the most competent individual who was doing that in, uh, in Austria. Uh, he had the technical training and individuals who um, uh, provided him with the uh, know-how. And um, he, unfortunately, I think he's one of the individuals who doesn't carry through to the modern era as a, a real... Uh, the, the, recognition of his work is not uh, doesn't really compare with what he really did in the, in the, in his, in his mm. time and but stephen smith uh, as well as testing um rockets using rocket mail he also and this is one of the other contributions of uh, smith's work was that he tested rockets in the delivery of food and medicines and even living creatures and that's something that nobody else had done. And then finally, I just want to mention that um, although um, Stephen Smith did all his work in India, um, he was probably the very first member to join the BIS from India. Uh, was BIS was founded in 1933. The first rocketry experiments were conducted uh, in Britain by Gerhard Zucker, a German, 
Um, and it was that that motivated Stephen Smith says him into doing uh, those rocketry experiments in India. And um, so the work that Stephen Smith was doing was uh, something that carried in in the press in India. It got international recognition around Europe and US, and it also appeared in the bulletins of the BIS way back in 1933. And at that time, the editor of the BIS uh, was a guy called Arthur C. Clarke. So he has a lot of international connect connections, and I think that's what one of the main key contribution of uh, this book is. It's to highlight the work he did and uh, his international contacts. A lot of that work, uh, a lot of that details of that work has really been hidden in detail. And one more final, finally. This book wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't been able to trace uh, the work of, um, or rather the archive, of a 25-year-long correspondence. And it was a correspondence between Stephen Smith and uh, Dr. Robert Paganini. Paganini was a Swiss philatelist who'd started the Philatelic Society in Switzerland way back in 1912. And although um, he, Smith, got to know Paganini by inviting him to be an honorary member of the Indian Airmail Society that Smith had set up in Calcutta, they did get into a correspondence starting in 1925, which lasted until about 1950 about a quarter, quarter of a century. And that's, that's the year that uh, Paganini died. And sadly, um, although there were very close relationships and they never actually met, it's uh, a testimony to how long and deep and sincere the relationship these two guys had, that when Paganini died, he left him a quarter of everything in his will to Smith. And sadly, Smith died just uh, a few months later in February 1951. Crikey. Well, that is, yeah, what, what, what an absolutely extraordinary relationship that is. So I, I'm still struggling to work out how you use a rocket to deliver mail on a commercial basis. Was, was it actually working as a commercial thing, or was it just <laughs> the hope that it might do? Uh, no, he never made it to commercial um, status, really. There was um, a, um, a proposal from uh, the US. In fact, in 1959, um, the, the Americans tested uh, what they would call missile mail. And there was actually a cruise, <laughs> believe it or not, a cruise missile that uh, was used in the delivery of mail just to demonstrate that it could be done. Now, this is 1951, long after, uh, sorry, 1959, long after most of the early rocket mail pioneers had uh, done their work. And uh, a mail um, missile was used to deliver mail. Uh, it was launched from a submarine, believe it or not. And right. it was... Uh, automated, uh, of course, unmanned, uh, on crude, and it uh, was, it had a formal recognition where the postmaster general of the US, um, they had all these dignitaries and signed copies of the mails, and indeed one letter was presented to President Eisenhower in uh, uh, the middle of 1959, 
And the conclusion of that uh, experiment was to demonstrate that uh, missiles could be used and they would reduce the delivery time by a huge factor. Um, but of course, uh, by that time, um, rock, uh, aeroplanes were much more reliable and cheaper. They could carry passengers and mail and they could be traveling long distances anyway. And that model of air mail by rockets and missiles really fell, fell way back, uh, fell and, and was never uh, made any headway. It's just, it's just, I, I mean, it's just a moment of history that I just, until I talked to you the first time, I'd never, ever even con consider, considered it a thing. So back to Smith's rockets, you said he had lots and lots of different designs. Presumably his goal wasn't to make male rockets, but his goal was actually to, to, to do what? Was to, to, to launch rockets into space or, or, or do you know whether he talked about that at all? Um, he personally himself never mentioned space, although papers published afterwards, after his death, do talk about um, uh, the ability uh, of using his rockets as a uh, uh, starting point to get into space. And indeed, one correspondent, and I found this letter in the uh, um, Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., uh, he said, oh, yes, this, this guy in India was well ahead of the Russians. This is published. Uh, in the early 60s, and it makes the uh, highlights the note, uh, highlights the point that um, Smith, during his lifetime, uh, conducted three experiments which carried living creatures. Uh, there was uh, a snake, a mouse, and chicks, small uh, couple of chicks that were transported in, uh, in one of his rockets. And this piece that uh, was published in the early 60s compared um, Smith's efforts in transporting living creatures using rockets with that of uh, Laika and Sputnik, and commented that at least Smith's rockets carried these animals and the animals survived, whereas Laika didn't, which I thought was a bit cheeky compared to what uh, <laughs> um, the Russians were doing. But nevertheless, what Smith was trying to do, uh, and if I just go back to um, his early days, um, so he was 11 in 1903 when the very first aeroplanes took to the sky. And he was 18 in 1911 when the very first rocket mail, sorry, air mail, uh, took place. And it took place in India. So the very first official air mail transport uh, took place in India in 1911. And um, it was relatively close to where Smith was just about finishing school. Um, in northern India. And I'm guessing that both of those events, the idea of, you know, when you're 11 and you hear about flying machines, it must be a bit like what I remember uh, when I was 11 about uh, Apollo 11 um, landing on the moon. It, it's just sort of so in, uh, inspiring. And likewise, when he was leaving uh, school, he must have heard about this uh, record-breaking uh, event in, in India, not far from where he was, and uh, perhaps that inspired him to follow the idea of this new revolutionary method of transport. I suspect, and I'll talk about his family in a moment, but I suspect he would have liked to have gone into um, aviation, maybe fly, or even um, uh, learn to fly and own a plane, but that didn't happen for him. So 
the idea of uh, something even newer, of rockets, was something which he could engage in. Um, if I just mention that um, his uh, rockets were all initially uh, all solid fuel uh, rockets, the solid fuel he, that he was using, he purchased from um, providers commercially from <clears throat> companies that were available uh, producing these things for um, commercial operations. There was the Orient Fireworks Company and James Payne and Sons. These are British companies, but this is time of British India, so they had a presence in India. And because Smith is based in Calcutta, um, although Calcutta was um, uh, the originally the capital of India until 1931, a lot of the big contacts and big investments and the big names in terms of individuals were still based in, in Calcutta. And Calcutta Airport was uh, pretty much a, a, a gateway for the British Empire, particularly en route from Britain to Australia. So there was a lot of um, uh, intense activity, and he had a lot of contacts. So he was able to purchase the solid fuel from off the shelf, so to speak. Um, the later on in life, about 1944, he talks about using compressed air and gas as propellant. Although there's very little detail of what, which gas, and how he was getting the compressed air. For, for his rockets. Um, but um, he was um, making use of these rockets to transport what he thought was useful in India, particularly in, in India where you have very little infrastructure or in some parts of India where you have very little infrastructure in terms of roads and rails. And it's a vast landscape, uh, land masses as huge as India. He was, able, he was trying to demonstrate that you could use rockets as much cheaper, much more efficient to cover much larger distances, and specifically distances which weren't otherwise covered by rail or road. And he went, uh, he, on two occasions, he went to a place called Sikkim, which was then separate, but still part of the British India uh, a protectorate of uh, uh, of British protectorate, a separate. But now today, Sikkim is a state of India, so it's India. Um, but he got permission to go there. He wrote to the King of Sikkim, and he got permission, and he showed that in the undulating landscape of Sikkim, which is in the foothills of the Himalayas, rockets could be used particularly at a time of emergency. And there was an earthquake in 1934, not in Sikkim, but in the other side of India, um, now in Pakistan, in Quetta, which uh, demonstrated that rockets could be used as an emergency uh, transport vehicle. And he demonstrated this very small quantities of food and medicine uh, to show that it was a liable solution uh, in uh, uh, under these circumstances. So he was um, uh, trying to solve a practical problem, but he really didn't have a great deal of uh, personal skill uh, in, uh, in terms of technology or technical skills. Um, and he was just developing his skills as he went through. And just uh, one last point about um, um, the uh, his family. So I mentioned his name is Stephen Smith, and you say, what, Stephen Smith, Indian? 
Well, he, his father was uh, from England. His father was from uh, Lincolnshire in a, a town called Brigg, which is not far from Scunthorpe. And he went out in the 1960s as a tea plantation manager. And uh, his uh, mother must have been uh, of mixed heritage. And um, if you look at uh, Stephen Smith, his uh, pictures of him, uh, sort of, uh, um, uh, it's always very difficult to tell from black and white pictures, but I suspect he was brown-skinned, uh, Indian in, in appearance, black hair, um, but he wrote terrific uh, English, and he spoke, I'm sure, uh, very good English, as well as Hindi, no doubt. Um, so he thought of himself... Um, he's from this complicated background, and the only time I, where I see him writing about his nationality is way back, uh, in, in, sorry, after independence, when India is uh, an independent, independent nation, and he writes to the Indian, Indian Prime Minister Nehru, and in that letter he asserts himself uh, to be an Indian, saying that he's born in India, he is an Indian, uh, but he was, uh, he's, he's called Stephen Smith, he was a Christian, uh, he was, his father was British, and indeed, his, um, he had a, a son who, um, uh, in the late 60s, left India and came to, to London, and even today, or at least when I last communicated with him, his daughter and great-granddaughter live in London, uh, in part of uh, well, Walthamstow in London, but uh, they've really lost all that connection with uh, their great grandfather and all the work that he did in rocketry. Uh, that that's that's mad, isn't it? What what a, what a, what a crazy stuff. I mean, the, I, the as he was learning, as he was going, was there was there any specifics in terms of the rocket technology that he developed? that perhaps found its way around the world that you know if if he's writing things for the BIS and and other people are aware of his work were there innovations that he actually sort of had come up with that sort of found their way into other institutions um i i i've not found any evidence of anything specific um what i did find is that he was doing this work uh, at that key time in history. And in fact, one of the letters that I found, um, this was uh, from April 1936. There's a letter from um, the BIS, uh, founder of the BIS, Phil Cleeter, mm. who's writing a letter to Edward Pendray, the founder of the then um, American rocketry, uh, American Initially, it was called the uh, American Interplanetary Society, then later changed its name to the American Rocketry Society. So this letter, dated April 1936, Cleeter is talking about uh, sharing, passing on information from uh, Smith's experiment from India, because Smith, at least that, uh, by, then time, by that time, he was a member of the BIS, and he's writing this letter in this letter to Edward Pendray. And he says to Pendray, oh, can you then send me all of some details of what Goddard is doing? So in the early 30s, you, you'll remember all the names like uh, Werner von Braun, Hermann Orberth, and Robert Goddard. 
Um, he's a contemporary of the of their time, and his uh, contribution was nowhere near. But what I have found that, and I think this is where the uh, the, the book makes a contribution, is um, that Smith had this incredibly wide, broad range of contact internationally. And the fact that I found uh, files on his work in the Smithsonian, um, in, the, in Switzerland, uh, in the Museum of Communication there, in um, the British uh, Interplanetary Society have records of him, and particularly the vice president of uh, the BIS in the 1930s was a guy called Leslie Johnson in Liverpool. And I was able to see that file that his daughter still has, and that formed part of the contribution in the book. And I also went down to uh, places like the uh, London Postal Museum. And indeed, when I was in India doing the research for the Indian Space Program book, I went to um, Sikkim. Uh, the capital of Sikkim is Gangtok. And in the Gangtok archives, I found a, a file that uh, the king of Sikkim had because he corresponded with him getting his permission to come to Sikkim to do his tests. And in addition to that, I found uh, records of, uh, of references to his work, as well as in these letters exchanges between uh, Phil Cleeter and uh, Edward Pendray, there are letters between uh, um, Schmiedel uh, and also um, in publications, official publications within some of the uh, NASA um, conferences where his name is mentioned. So it's surprising that so few people know about him, and I'm hoping that some of this detail in this book will bring his work out of the shadows. Yeah, no, absolutely. So have you got a lot of interest in, say, places like in, in India itself about about this book? Presumably this this is would be a, a, a lovely story for particularly people working for the ISRO and, and places like that where... It's like, yeah, we, we, we've actually got this heritage that we didn't really know about. Have you, have you, have you had a lot of interest like that? Well, I, um, when I, <laughs> again, when I was doing the research for the Indian Space Programme book, I did ask a lot of the uh, people I was uh, interviewing for that book if they'd ever heard of Stephen Smith. And all, all of them said no. So when I did get the uh, initial uh, ideas for this book, uh, for this book, and particularly the Paganini archive, I then contacted a former Israel chairman, uh, Kiran Kumar, and I told him about this, and I asked him if he would be interested in uh, writing a forward to the book, which he agreed, and that forward is in there. Um, so I think there is a general interest, uh, particularly within the, if you like, the, the modern uh, community of uh, India, which has an interest in space, um, even though the work that Smith did fell way short of anything that you might call uh, uh, related to being uh, related to anything in the way of space. But yes, there is a, an interest because I think one of the the key reasons I think why Smith's work has been um, uh, stepped over in history is because. A, he was not really a well-known individual, although his name is well-known and he had all the international contacts. In India, uh, he wasn't uh, very well-known. Um, and then he had this thing called the Second World War. Uh, 
And then during that period, uh, he started not to publish as much uh, as he used to before the war started. Um, and then, of course, he was living in Calcutta. Not many people appreciate that, although India, um, mainland India, was spared any direct action. But Calcutta docks uh, was um, uh, bom uh, bombed by the Japanese Air Force. So he would have been in earshot of that. He would have heard about it. So they had this tumultuous period of the Second World War. There was a famine in India, particularly in Bengal, in the part of uh, India where he was. And then after the war, as with any uh, world war, this huge shifts of people. So the big uh, communities of the Americans who were based there during the war, they left. The British, of course, as part of the independence that came two years later in 1947, they left. There was uh, a lot of very strong Jewish community in Calcutta and at the foundation of Israel at the same time, a lot of the Jewish community left. So it became a very traumatic period to be living through. And Smith writes about uh, having... Uh, uh, the privations, you know, in, in the UK, there was the rationing still uh, a few years after the war. Uh, life was tough. Uh, services went back to normal as when the war ended. It took quite a few years. And in India, there was this additional uh, overhaul of a, a new government coming in. And um, there was, he describes, and I, I remember reading one of the letters where he describes some of the rioting that took place as part of the independence and the um, separation of India, India and Pakistan that took place. Really vivid and scary examples of some of the things that uh, he, he experienced. And along, aside all of this, he himself, no doubt part of uh, the reason was that uh, there was limited access to food and resources. He spent most of 1947 onwards till the end of his life being ill. And in one case, he talks about, he says he should have, he should have died. But he did survive. And I think that period, that tumultuous period that followed uh, after the, the war and the last five, seven years of his uh, life, um, he was uh, uh, overrun by world events. So a lot of his work just fell in the shadows of history. Well, that's a yeah, what a what a what a pity. When does the book actually come out? It's already out. It's uh, out in uh, uh, all, all good food, all good uh, bookstores. Uh, it's available in paperback, hardback, and then of course e ebook versions as well. Talking about the the Indian space program more generally, obviously the, the the sort of big news at the moment is is it's been reasonably hard hit by the COVID. 19 pandemic so have you got any kind of further news or or or, or elements that you've heard about the what, what's happening over in in india are there kind of major because they've got some really exciting missions coming up over the next few years have those have those big missions been ha, had any kind of major setbacks that you've heard um it, it, i think all of the uh, major programs have had a setback although i did see an announcement from um, the um, uh, go a government minister saying that the, um, the, the the major mission, the Gaganyaan, the human spaceflight mission, uh, 
we're still on target with a launch date uh, in uh, 2022. The it's still at very early stages. If I just talk, bring you up to speed where I think we are with the Gaganyan mission. So this is a, a mission uh, that was announced by the Prime Minister of India in 2017, uh, with the idea of having um, two or three Indian astronauts in low Earth orbit, which were launched from India on board uh, an Indian launch vehicle uh, for about a week-long mission. Um, the, a lot of the basic uh, technologies have been tested already, um, a bit like the crew, crew escape system. Uh, they've been developing the human capsule um, for some time. Uh, four astronauts have been identified and they're undergoing training, astronaut training in Russia. Although there was a bit of a hiccup earlier on the, as soon as the lockdown started, but I understand they've now resumed their training in Star City in Moscow. The um, announcement uh, stated that they, India will continue with the uh, testing of the launch vehicle, particularly some more in-flight abort testing this year. Uh, so far, as I'm aware, they haven't, taken, they haven't taken place. They want to do about three or four flight abort tests um, the announcement only two days ago that uh, uh, the from from the government saying the government minister saying saying that yep we're on target for the 22 uh, timeline now that's subject to at least two uncrewed uh, orbital flight tests but um, those flight tests uncrewed flight tests were scheduled perhaps one the end of this year and one next year prior to the actual flight test with uh, a crew of three. That hasn't happened. It's, um, as all governments do, uh, they make uh, all the right noises. They could be right, it could still happen, but you know, um, the COVID uh, lockdown has uh, uh, seen delays right around the world. Uh, as you know, the um, uh, Europe, European Space Agency and Russia Spacecraft to Mars has uh, uh, gone off the shelf and wait, delayed by, by about two years. Um, that's so the human spaceflight program um, is ongoing, and the target for 22 is still there. The other programs that India had for um, flights to Venus um, or Venus Orbiter, um, the there was a mission. There is a mission called Aditya, which has been in the pipeline for a very long time. That was hoping that was planned to be launched uh, this later this year, early next year. That also currently doesn't have a, a fixed date for launching. That's a, a solar um, mission to investigate the the sun. Um, and India is also interested in going back to um, Mars. Another. Martian orbiter mission. Um, but th th those are pretty much on hold, it's unclear. But one thing I can um, tell you about, and again, this is something new, the private space sector in India, uh, isn't, this isn't huge, but there are many uh, space start startups based in India, which are uh, looking forward to something that uh, in India is called the Space Activities Bill, which is essentially, Legislation, Indian legislation, which would allow um, Indian space 
companies to operate within the space sector. That bill hasn't come through. Um, that I really think is the uh, is the really important next hurdle before this uh, private space sector can take off. But in the Indian Space Research Organisation, under following a, meet, uh, uh, a public meeting, a meeting that was publicised, which was headed by the Prime Minister, said to Israel that you have to open up your resources. So the various sites that Israel has for launching spacecraft, testing spacecraft, building them, uh, will be made available to private space sector companies. And Israel, I think, uh, is now going to do that. It's been forced to do that. And with uh, once the bill is uh, comes into play, there will be, hopefully, there's really good positive signs. First time I've seen those, um, that the private sector in India can actually take a step forward and who knows what will happen once that uh, that starts yeah i think that's really i think that that's a really exciting news story it's one that that we did we did actually spot a couple of weeks ago coming down the lines about yeah that the isro were being <laughs> told that they had to share their facilities I, yeah i think that's a i think that's a really exciting one isn't it i think i think commercial space all around the world is a is a exciting prospect that's becoming more and more a thing isn't it really mm. oh, we could go forever actually I, I was just about to ask you a question that would open up a can of worms about the <laughs> about the indian human space flight and and the, and the desire for that and, and whether that's actually taking away from their perhaps more noble scientific aims but um but yeah well, have you got a quick answer to that one <laughs> well yeah i mean i i very quick. I, I think it's, you know, a bit like you and perhaps everybody listening. I'm a fan of space and I would like to see India launching its human spaceflight program. But I think it's so expensive compared to what you could, what else you could do with the same money in space. I would rather India put that on hold and spend more time doing their science exploration missions. Um, but, you know, that's uh, where we are. And I think a lot of this is being driven by what uh, China is doing. Mm. China's taking some major leap forwards and uh, it's, it's driving India to keep up. And, and this is one of the, the consequences of that. Um, if I can just mention, going back to, uh, in conclusion, back to Stephen Smith, mm -hmm. one thing I didn't mention is that you will be familiar um, because of the British Interplanetary Society's history that uh, the BIS was involved in finding founding of the International uh, Aeronautical Federation, which uh, is responsible for the annual uh, International Aeronautical uh, Conference, IAC, that happens every year. And that first meeting um, that took place in France, in Paris, in 1950, where the BIS was present, it was one of the founding members, is... Um, uh, and and um, Friedrich Schmiedel, incidentally, uh, one of these uh, rocket mail pioneers, was present at that meeting. If this happened in 1950, uh, it's a pity that uh, Stephen Smith uh, wasn't recognized then, and of course he was probably too ill at that time anyway. But if India, uh, if through India, um, if Stephen Smith could have, could have possibly been recognized uh, what he was doing in India, could have had a presence 
in Paris in 1950. Perhaps India also could have had a, an interplanetary society. And I'm just wondering, speculating of the impact of, <clears throat> of what that could have meant in terms of propelling and accelerating the space activities in India starting back in the 1950s. As it was, uh, it was um, not the case. And Stephen Smith um, really did not have um, the kind of uh, recognition then. And the opportunity was lost. And it's interesting, the same difficulties that he suffered, that Stephen Smith didn't get the recognition from, uh, from the government, is exactly the same cycle that the Indian space startups are, have been going through. And hopefully this announce, recent announcement will open that up and uh, there will be indeed uh, some more uh, space activities coming out of India as the private space sector opens up. I, I suppose that the, the, the human spaceflight thing, if, if India are able to do a human spaceflight in 22 or even 23 or even 24, that will put them the only the fourth nation ever to achieve it. So that's that's an astounding achievement in itself, isn't it, really? Yeah, and I'm just mindful of uh, the, the huge cost of this. And um, it is a terrific achievement, and I would love to see that happen. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, the, especially the current situation, economies around the world are uh, taking a hit. And uh, I'm sure India will too, uh, will find that uh, it needs to um, recover the losses over the last few months. And that economic recovery will play an important role in how fast and how quickly the space sector, uh, space activities in India can recover by too. In some ways, the space sector is is a really good vehicle for spending your way out of recessions isn't it in in a way i i i kind of see it as because you're opening up a new a new frontier that that potentially has the 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 uh, you know opens up a, a new economy so i can see that the the space sector at the end of all this could go either way couldn't it it could, it could suddenly have a, a, an enormous cut in spending or face something quite opposite where everyone's going well we need to we need to inject some cash and some money into something that that uh, is is exciting and and reinvigorates the whole world i think space is well placed for that yes and particularly as you see the the rise of the private space sector around the world mm. um you know even china has about 30 odd uh, companies that are uh, considered to be private sector companies and of course you we, we know what space access spacex has been doing in leaps and bounds over the the last few years and all of that i think is quite encouraging and hopeful and uh, optimistic um view of uh, uh, of the coming few years well yeah I, I i shall be ordering myself a copy of the book on 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 uh, on a good bookstore <laughs> probably amazon ironically a little bit of that money will go towards building rockets the interplanetary podcast is alive there we go awesome as always so so good uh matt if people want to know a bit more where should they go they should go to 
www.astrotalkuk.org. That's for good beer. For us, though, Jamie... Where, yeah. should, where should where should people go if they wanted to join our lovely patrons who this show would not be possible without? Again, this show has only come to you this week because of the generosity of these absolutely fantastic human beings by which I'm blown away every single week, particularly when I see new people joining. Like oh. we, we saw three, three new patrons this week, which I thought was... Yeah, incredible stuff. Them. They save us. Every week they save us. They make it happen, especially during this... Very difficult lockdown. Um, they need to go to www.interplanetary.org.uk. It's all there. Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, possibly not bother with, with Facebook, um, as previously discussed. And Because um, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the thing about Facebook, if I go, then then I'll get sucked into the vortex. Matt will start like, arguing with people again, yeah. Uh, yeah I, what I do you don't mean the Earth is flat? Uh. <laughs> um jamie yeah what what have you got planned for this weekend um i'm very busy this weekend more diy but but very excitingly matt i'm going to a a drive-in movie theater um in chichester and i'm going to see reservoir dogs Whoa. Um, and it's great because it's Secret Cinema. Shout out to Secret Cinema. So they'll have actors walking around, you know, in character from the film and I'm sure some sets. Um, and you get food delivered to your car. Yeah, well, you know? do you know what's amazing? I'm going to shout out to some of my students who, in live event management this week, they they they... 11 weeks ago, we were thinking about what, what students could do, and they decided to have a drive-in cinema yeah, which had a live band playing the soundtrack. So you would go to see, say, Bohemian Rhapsody, and you would have a Queen tribute act doing the soundtrack underneath, and you drive into that, and it would be a live gig with exactly the same thing. That so, is excellent. What an idea. Amazing. So they, so, th so they definitely got the zeitgeist just right. So good on I them. I think they did. What are you up to, Matt? What are you up to this weekend? Collecting my rover, which I'm afraid has now died. Oh, no. no. Yeah, that's it. It is unfixable. Oh, no. So I've got to pay to have my car scrapped. That's so oh. annoying. So now I'm going to be looking for a new vehicle. Are and, you going to treat yourself uh, to a new rover or are you going to get a Tesla? I might get a van. I might get a van, Yes. Yeah, I might get a van, and then I can take my telescope up onto the up onto Exmoor. Are you going to get like the 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 big dog van from um, Dumb and Dumber? Yeah, Winnie Bago type thing. It's a shagging wagon. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, we'll have a good weekend, Matt. And uh, listeners, have a great weekend. Um, you know, look after yourself. Wear a mask. Wash your hands, and look up to the sky. Yes, enjoy your newfound freedoms, but uh, don't take them for granted just yet. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Look after each other. <laughs> you sound like Jerry Springer. Take care of yourselves and each other. Good night. That was good. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. <laughs> Go good night, everyone. See you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.